0: You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle, find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be.
1: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. Bringing the world's top
0: experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable.
1: Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet. With more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we talk about how to get certain before investing your time, energy, money, and ultimately your life into a project with our guest, David Hitter. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there, along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com, or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous interview, we talked about the secret skill of cultivating happiness with returning guest, who's one of my all-time favorites, Dr. Tal Ben-Shahar. Now, for our interview with David. David Kidder is a New York Times bestselling author of the intellectual devotional, author of the Startup Playbook, featuring exclusive interviews with 40 of the world's most influential CEOs and founders. While interviewing people like Tony Shea, Elon Musk, and Sarah Blakely, David discovered that these world changers have a shared worldview. He walks us through this and more in his newest book, New to Big, how companies can create like entrepreneurs, invest like VCs and install a permanent operating system for growth. David, welcome to the Science of Success.
2: Thank you for having me. Grateful to be here.
1: Well, we're super excited to have you on the show today. And you have such a rich background with so much experience. I'd love to start with a little bit about your story, some of the companies you've scaled, and some of the thought leaders and, and industry shapers that you've worked with and interacted with.
2: I think of my career as, you know, my job is entrepreneurship and have been doing this since I was right out of college age, I think 19 or 20 uh, when the dot-com boom started. And I've lived through, I think now, as you might guess, all uh, three major crises from the dot-com to 2008, uh, obviously 9-11, and now this. I had no idea that there'd be this many moments of disruption. So I've gotten comfortable with how to learn and lead in these moments. but And also just deeply curious about the mindset of great entrepreneurs. And so happy to talk about those. My own experience, but also just some of the books I've written about the ways to think, I guess, when you're trying to bet your life.
1: Perfect. Yeah. So I would say let's start with the mindset of great entrepreneurs. I know you've interviewed some of the most successful entrepreneurs on the planet, people like Elon Musk, Sarah Blakely, et cetera. Tell me, when you sat down and had these conversations with people who have built transformational companies and, and scaled huge businesses, were there any commonalities that you saw between the way that they approach business?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. I think, first of all, I think it's the first thing to recognize is that it's extremely rare that it happens. So it does happen. But if you look at just statistically speaking, the probability that you get a chance to build and scale a massive company is just very, very rare. Taking all talent aside, opportunity aside, if you equalize all of it, it's just a very rare thing. There's so many factors that go into those outcomes, like outside forces and others that indicate the opportunities to build a great business. But in the case of, I wrote this book called The Startup Playbook, which was 40 interviews, 300 hours with some of the best entrepreneurs in the world, as you mentioned. Kind of when you came back and you listened to what they said, they all basically said that the criteria by which they bet their life on a startup was really around five things. And I'm happy as we get into this conversation to share more about what those five things are. But the one that was dominant, and the, really the first one, was this idea of proprietary gifts. Very few successful entrepreneurs just write a, You know, chase white space. They look in the marketplace and say, "Well, there's money there," and they go after it. In many cases, it's, they're born to do it. It comes out of a gift of an experience or their life, quite frankly where they understand something that no one in the world understands and how to execute it. And that is really the secret. That's the unfair advantage is that they're truly a one-on-one type of founder who can go and do it. So if many companies go out into a space and just try to build a company to solve a problem in the world... You know, usually one or two win and the first one usually wins 70, 80% of the space when it's a new space. So they're just, they know something that no one in the world has. So that proprietary gift was really the first lens, the first criteria that it was an opportunity. And more importantly, as more important as we, as an entrepreneur to think about when you do go and start a company that you have a proprietary gift, that you're not just crossing your fingers and starting something because you like the idea of being an entrepreneur, but there's an obsession and there's a giftedness that's going to allow you to win.
1: So how do you so, think um, about creating or cultivating or uncovering what your own proprietary gift might be?
2: You know, I have three sons. So I have, you know, they're young, they're 10, 13, or 14. So we think a lot about this in the sense of, I think it starts in, you know, what you deeply care about. So a life event happened to you, or you could put yourself in a place where an event would happen where you discover something, an insight. But the insight is equally about the need, right? But it's also the insights about how to solve it. And the answer of how you solve it typically comes from that proprietary gift. And so when those things align, you know, massive need in the world, this could be profit or, or non-profit or otherwise, with a insight in how to solve it that's anchored in a proprietary gift, you start to see the stars align. And there's other signals where like every, you know, every 10 hours feels like one hour in your work and your productivity is high. Those are really great pulls, so to speak, in your effort, energy, and your thinking because with your your conscious and subconscious life, you need both working really 24 hours a day to solve something. And so that obsession is a good signal that, wow, you're going to process twice as long as someone who, even if they're the founder of a company, when they leave work, they actually leave the work behind. I just don't think that you can be in a need in the world and solving it with a company where you're not thinking about it 24 hours a day.
1: You mentioned that it's really difficult to find all three of these things at once or, Anyone and, and yourself included, when you're thinking about where you are today, what opportunities you should pursue, what do you do if you can't find something that meets all three of those things?
2: Well, like I said, it's very rare that they actually align. So, you know, great you know, these these we see all these amazing successful entrepreneurs, but what we don't see is the millions that you know fail within five years behind them. The highest risk, in most cases, the least reward is to be the founder. And so I, I think that that's, you know, only founders as successful is a complete myth. I have contacts and friends who know that their superpower is not to found the company, it's to scale it, right? And they have very particular superpowers across the stages of a company's life, whether it be in the early stages, mid or late stages, where they can be leveraged. And they do phenomenally successfully on economically and otherwise on leveraging their proprietary gift following an idea that an entrepreneur created. So, I think knowing yourself and having that real honest, high integrity conversation of what you're good at and how to join a movement if you're not the founder is equally as important as the need to start a company. I would almost recommend that people don't start a company, better join a great one and learn how to do it. In doing so, you can discover your own path.
1: That's really good advice and advice, honestly, that's not shared very frequently. That almost makes me come back in in some ways to this notion of the proprietary gift and the idea you touched on learning from existing or previous experiences. For somebody who says, I don't know what my proprietary gift is, how do you figure out what it is or does everyone have one? Can you create one? Do you have to build it? Is it just you're born with it or not? How do you conceive of that?
2: Well, sometimes you don't really realize that you're in it, or maybe you don't even like the answer. There's a psychology of loss aversion where you always sort of like overvalue what you have and undervalue what you could become. There's security in that when you look at where you spend your energy and you have the highest effective rates in return on time return on money to some extent really the answer to that question in my view, and sometimes you don't like the answer. Maybe you're really good at music, but there's no money music, but that's where your giftedness is, or maybe you're an entrepreneur, but you know, you want to be in, you know, a super high tech AI meets SpaceX sort of thing. And that feels really sexy and valuable to the world. But you're really good at networking. And that's your gift. I think there's this sense that valuing your gift and undervaluing your gift and overvaluing someone else's is really kind of like this, you kind of suffer from the sin of comparison and you want what others have in a way versus just focusing on yours, despite how you feel about its value in the world, it's the the, the power of the value capturing is just the focus, is to really go all in on the things where you naturally flow. And you should create in that strength. When I look back at sort of like the successes and failures I've had in my career, inevitably there's an incredible alignment between kind of the original ideas that I created and built with teams versus the ones where I chase someone else's dream, where I chased a press release of another company or something that looked really like a trend. You know, there was a big marketplace and I knew I could get my team together and raise capital. And the reality is, is whoever cares the most wins. If you don't have that in your genetics, if you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you'll ultimately get exposed and you won't have success. So I don't know if that helps you, but those are signals around really looking at what you're good at and then finding the biggest need in the world to solve with that talent.
1: Yeah, I think that's helpful. And and. The fact that you've touched on this a couple of times with this idea of maybe that mission isn't you founding a company, it's finding an organization that you can be part of that's dynamic, that lets you really focus in on what your core strengths are and and you can create the most value.
2: I have a friend who has served as the director of monetization for two of the most successful technology companies ever. crazy well. You know, he's always taken the number two or number three position in a company. He doesn't want a big title. He's in the background, but he's the one who architects its financial future. And he's been rewarded into an astonishing amount of wealth, but also he lives out that skill. And that's what he does. He is between a B round and a C round or being a D round type of person. He goes in and does a very specific, very valuable, hard task of solving how the company is going to make repeatable, scalable revenue. And he's been rewarded with that. And he's very humble about it, but he's probably one of the best in the world, but he knows he's not the founder. He's that guy. So I just think that that's an example of someone who's extraordinary, but also knows his superpowers. I encourage people to stare down that truth and, and not really wish they were someone else or wish they had more skill or wish they were building a company that was you know sexier, but is really themselves in all of this. That's what matters the most.
3: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy
1: in every journey. So what are some of the other elements that you uncover that shape the mindset of great entrepreneurs?
2: Well, the the second through fifth lens, well, the, the first three are really about idea selection. So the first is, is it coming from a proprietary gift? We've covered that. The second is, is do I have extreme focus? Have I been able to go in and validate very quickly the need and how to solve it? I don't have, you know, 10 options. I figure out the one option. So ironically, optionality is the enemy. The more things you do, the weaker you are as a company. So you have to be able to get the science of focus, right? So you can get all of your concentration of your energy, your mind and the team. And quite frankly, that subconscious conscious cycles going to solve it because the chances are low, you will be able to do it anyway. So extreme focus, the second lens, the third lens is you got to build painkillers and not vitamins. So I've been, I think I've been saying this now for 10 years, when the book first came out, but painkillers are solving chronic lifelong malignant pain in a customer. Vitamins are nice. They're wishful thinking. You hope the customer likes it or you hope they behave differently. But the truth always lives in the behavior of a customer. In this case, the painkiller is the answer to that question of what, what to solve or how to solve it. The fourth lens is you solve those first three, which most ideas die in. The last two about execution is what do I execute? And the fourth lens is really the 10x factor, which is what element of the business can be 10 times better or impossible to replicate. And that is really powerful in the sense that Once you start investing asymmetrically in that one thing, the company gets to a place where it's uncatchable, which leads to the fifth lens, which is, can you build a monopoly? The M word. Can you put, you know, hooks and barbs in customers so they stay with you long enough, i.e. about three years, so that you can solve the whole need and you can also build a business. If you're one and done quickly, it's very hard to get through the cycle of customers, a volume of customers you would need to actually discover the truth for your product, or your service, and be with them economically to build a business. So, those five lenses are, you know, have been written now 10 years ago, have really just led my life. It's led 40 of my angel investments in the last 15 years, 10 years. And it's the advice that I really give most entrepreneurs thinking about what or should I build a business and how to do it.
1: You said a couple of things, things that I thought were really insightful. One, this idea of investing asymmetrically in the piece of your business that's really hard to replicate or has a competitive advantage. Tell me a little bit more about that.
2: It's about finding something that as it gets to critical mass, the very next thing after critical mass is like, it's like a velocity, it's uncatchable. So for example, that could be, there's lots of forms of monopolies. There could be data, right? I plug into a very specific stream of data and I get so much of it that no one has the insights I have. It could be integration. I plug into so many things that at some point, there's a tipping point where I plugged into so many things that everybody gets their whole solution at my in my tool or my place. also you know it could be a salesforce, which is we go so deep into our channel that no one could replicate that channel and so we have complete product or service all the way to doorstep type of of access. It could be i p around you know knowledge you build so many insights into a particular space that that community or those answers can only exist with you. you have a moat around relationships so the answer is whatever aspect of the business that given enough time and get enough connection with a customer in that need, no one else could make. And the test for that is that when you go to the marketplace, no one really even bothers to compete with you in a way. Your competitive set's actually quite low. This is something that Peter Thiel once taught me, which is competition is for losers. Why build a company that's competing with other companies when you can just build a one-of-one company that creates its own marketplace? I think that that's you know been my philosophy for for the last, at least this last company Click or a Bionic, but that's a hard thing to do. But the reality is that companies take a long time to build. They take eight to ten years. So if you're not committed to that outcome, why are you building a company in the first place? And so the way you think and the way you execute drives so much of the value that you realize with your team and with your customers.
1: Something else you touched on a minute ago that is such a great insight. I don't think I've heard it phrased quite this way, but I've heard it in, in, in different phrasings. But This notion that optionality is the enemy and that the more things you do, the weaker you become. Tell me more about that.
2: Well, I think you see this in both startups, but also, you know, big companies. I think we now watch the end of all the conglomerate as a successful model, which the whole idea was, is that the more things we do at scale, the greater our business is hedged, right? And that's true if you have a lot of resources, but startups don't have a lot of resources. They're, you know, trying to typically zero-sum themselves into a marketplace, it's so in this case is that it's so hard to get traction with even a customer in a neat one single need that if you don't completely dominate it, you really can't have a leverage point to expand your business. So if you have a weak toehold in the marketplace and you're already reaching for the next one, maybe that toehold is it can't sustain both in strength or weight what you need to accomplish. So you really have to go extremely deep into one need and dominate it before you start expanding from that. So that's one view of it. The other view of it is that if you took a SaaS business, for example, which I focused on for last my last other my other start was last two or three, features, you know, an arms race in features very often doesn't lead to success. I mean, it can over a long period of time, but over a short period of time, say the first three or four or five years, it's really about just solving the one problem. And so the question of what is the one problem. Is one that an, an entrepreneur, a founder, a CEO has to get right. So we have to test a lot of things to answer that question. And so one of my other past investors, Albert Wenger and Fred Wilson, once told me it's like the job of a founder is really three things it's the vision and roadmap, right? And you basically have to be correct in your vision within three years, but you have to be almost completely on time in the first four quarters that you're in. The second is it's just talent is getting the right people and the right seats at the right time during the stages in those first three years, uh, knowing that you may have Mr. Wright only for eighteen months. And so that talent it was certainly through one through twenty the first twenty employees, if you get a, the wrong person in the wrong seat, it's often fatal, right? because it takes six to nine months to get them there to discover the wrong person, they leave, you replace them, and you know it's it's a year and you're out of money or and or you lose your customer. So talent is the second part of the job, and the third is just never run out of money. And there's only two ways to do that. You either earn it or you raise it. And ironically, very few companies, despite perception, actually raise venture capital. I mean, there's only a couple thousand a year relative to the 2.4 million businesses created every year. So very few raise it. So you better be focused on how to organically grow your business in all instances. And so those three jobs are really incredibly hard to get right because timing of the decisions and what's coming next is such a critical aspect of leading well and in, in being a founder. Such
1: great such advice. Great I advice. love all three of those so, suggestions. And that brings me to some of the lessons that you share in New to Big with this idea of creating a company that scales, that thinks entrepreneurially, but then scales up to be a larger business. Tell me about what was the inspiration behind writing that and what were some of the key lessons that you drew out of it?
2: Well, the idea behind the book, and I'm sure you have listeners who are you know, in corporate jobs as well who want to start their own company and or be an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur in a large organization. And they can't for a variety of reasons. Either they don't want to leave their job or they can't leave their job, but they still have this capability. I had written the startup playbook and I had spoken at a bunch of conferences and I've been asked to come speak at large enterprises around how to think differently. And so that we sort of pioneered the whole growth mindset movement as well as the growth systems movement that has led to the transformation of companies like P&G and General Mills and Citi and others. And fundamentally, it's the recognition that, you know, big big organizations are basically focused on planning and risk mitigation. So that big to bigger engine, that skill of operating at will is really at war with growth because growth lives in risk. And so if you're trying to de-risk and create risk at the same time, The purpose of those operations, so to speak, or the cultures are very different. And so what we focus on is really transforming that, refounding big companies. And we do that with this model called the growth operating system, which is really the job of new to big. It's that zero to 100 million dollar revenue, that first dollar to scale revenue job that large companies struggle doing. And our belief is that venture capital and entrepreneurship are forms of management. And the reason why this is so important is that there's a huge distinction between planning and discovery. Planning is something that's knowable. Growth lives in discovery. It's in a job of managing the unknowable. And if you go into the statistics of this, the deeper you go into, you realize that as you get good at this job of scaling growth as a capability, you realize that the statistics are really incredible about where growth comes from. So if you're a big company or, a, quite frankly, an angel investor like myself, you have to make about 40 bets into a single need in the world to have success. So if you look at the math, about 7% of all the capital you invest in an opportunity area or a portfolio produces 70% of all the money you ever make. If I make 100 bets or 50, you know, seven of those bets out of 100 are going to be all of my unbound returns. And so when I go back to the beginning and I look at why do we make those seven out of 100 that made all the money, They have two qualities. One is high conviction, meaning why you and why now? What's the proprietary gift of the company and what's the outside force? And the second one is is non-consensus decision making. So you make all of your money with the ideas with the highest disagreement rate. If you have consensus, you're basically screwed. You have to be able to invest in large volume with high degree of failure in a way that's sort of contrarian, non-consensus, so you can actually learn something. And it's in that discomfort, that learning discomfort, which is not planning, that growth is discovered. And that is the opposite of the way a large organization works. And we have learned and built a model and coach it with some of the biggest companies in the world as they've ignited their growth revolutions from the top.
1: How can an investing entity or a decision maker simultaneously have high conviction and also have disagreement or lack of consensus?
2: Because the signals across the stages of venture, seed, ABC, are all very different types of signals, both in the quality of them, i.e. the efficacy, like is it a strong or weak signal? It's really less about building a business than it is about discovering the need. And so in the early stages in a seed round, or an A round, about 60% of the reason why you stay invested in an, an idea, even if it's just despite its struggle, is really the team. And so in a way you're looking at the founders and saying, they have a secret, they have a proprietary gift, and they've discovered a really big need. It's emerging. It doesn't exist yet. And so in those stages, you're creating metrics that are really signals. They're what is the you know problem solution model we're looking for that creates repeatability and focus that we can draw an insight into a, why we would keep investing it. Almost always, it very rarely has to do with economics. There might be an economic element to it that ends up sort of in the metrics cocktail. I like to call it the God metric, but it very rarely is financial. So in the beginning stages, we're looking for the signal that comes from solving a new need. could be a basket of them, quite frankly. And across the stage of seed going to A round, once you discover that product mark to fit, which is usually the A round, you can repeat that metric. And we want to keep focus of the company. So we don't want to go global quickly. We don't want to go national quickly. We want to focus just on a customer and a geography or vertical that we can repeat really quickly to get focus. And once we come out of that round, the A round and the B round, we can take that God metric and then start to expand it. So each one of these stages are discovering commercial truth, but each stage is a different commercial truth and the ability to take something once, do it many times, and then do it very widely. And that really creates the funding stage gating that you're familiar with, ABC, that lead to a company by the C going to D round that we think could scale. We should pretty much know the answer to how big this can be at those points and what you have over a reasonable period of time, call it four to five years.
1: Got it. Yeah, that makes sense from the perspective of looking at kind of the key challenge at each of the different growth phases. But I'm curious more around as an investing decision maker, without maybe abstracting this a little bit from just the context of startups, Explain to me the distinction because when you say making a high conviction decision, but that, that you know your investment committee or whoever also has doesn't have consensus about, how do you balance those two factors?
2: Well, again, with growth funds in particular, the structure of the board is designed to make non-consensus high conviction. Enterprises are getting better at this. But like, for example, if you look in deeply at the investment team at, let's say, Andreessen and Horowitz, right? And they're public about this. When they find an idea that they all love, they try to talk themselves out of it. So think about that for a second. If they all believe something's a good idea, they realize, wait, hold on. Everybody else knows this. There is not enough dissension, so therefore, most can be a biased decision, and in bias becomes normalcy. That means that other people have the same insight. So, I think that the culture and the decision architecture you put at that board level, that investment level, really determines how effective you are in discovery. In fact, there are tools that a lot of funds use to allow for almost like pre-mortems before they create investing where they'll make blind or unbiased decision making early in the process and then revisit it before they make an investment decision to see if uh, if they become normalized in their biases or they maintain the sort of non-consensus aspects that allow them to get to that truth. At a large organization, it's harder candidly, but they are very smart. They're equally as capable as anybody else in the marketplace investing. It just takes them a while to adjust from a planning model to a discovery model. I'll close with this comment, which is I think when you get a lot of the mindset things right. So I'll give you an example of one. This idea of shifting from TAM to TAP, from a total addressable marketplace view of the world to a total addressable problem or need, you kind of move from a, a linear to portfolio model. So we're we know the need, even if the marketplace doesn't exist, because we've framed it in such a way that the volume of bets that we're making in that space is going to be higher because we're discovering as opposed to, okay, we're going to build, you know, a specific company, go after a specific market where we know there's a specific budget and a specific buyer. Very different sort of uh, models of investing where one, you know, consensus is probably to your benefit because, it you know, experience will accrue to advantage conversely when you're going for growth that same experience is your liability because your bias is is to seek things that you already know and we know that growth doesn't live there so that's a long-winded way to describe this and it's a fairly it's probably a more sophisticated answer than needed but it's a very complex decision architecture question that you have to get right yeah i think
1: no that was a great extrapolation of that and and if i can sort I, of I, summarize I, it in some way basically what you're saying is you want to avoid essentially groupthink where everyone Agrees the same way you want to create some sort of dissension in the thought process you want to beat the ideas up, red team them you know postmortem premortem however you want to look at it, and use that methodology to ensure or try to ensure that you're thinking about the possible failure points of the opportunity before you before you jump in
2: yeah, and you're taking an opposite signal, which is you know when there is friction there's opportunity right because there's net new learning, yes, you have to validate it the efficacy of the learning is very high be high, but you need to go in and, and lean into that discomfort. I know that you're in this science of success, which you focus on. I'll give you another example of this, which is how many bets do you have to make in a portfolio to get those returns? You know, you need typically 20 to 40 in like a major need in the world when you're going for growth, knowing that you'll probably have a 60% failure rate across all the stages of your investing seed to see or beyond. So the second factor, volume being the first, the second is time, right? And where does your due diligence come from? So We've talked about lenses, we talk about mindset, but there is a function of have we invested the energy in determining if this is a good idea and how. And so if you look at fund returns about you go down, you can kind of get your money back. <laughs> so if I have, let's say I have a million dollars or 10 million or hundred million, it doesn't really matter. And I make 20 bets into a venture fund or a growth fund. I'll typically just on that volume alone, get about 1.5% on my money, which is not really a great return for the time and energy. But if I look at the other factor of diligence, if I spend less than 20 hours per deal, I'll go from 1.5 to 1.9 too. So not a significant lift more. If I spend less than 40 hours, so double, the return will go from about 1.9 to probably 3 to 3.5. We have a bunch of data on this, a bunch of machine learning data. But the last thing is is that if you spend greater than 40 hours and the diligence is shared from a network, meaning you have multiple lenses and filters – the fund returns go to over 9x. And the reason why is because you're getting dissension, you're getting non-consensus, you're getting deep expertise to take harder looks at things that filter out the signals from false positives and false negatives. And that's where the fund returns really lift. And so if you can replicate some of that systematic thinking and modeling in time, energy, money, and network, and how you deploy capital into growth as an investor, or quite frankly, as a founder, you're really going to radically increase the odds that you get it right. And that really is about how much openness do you have to disagreement. And you have to be very comfortable with it to get to the right decisions.
1: Yeah, that's a great way to characterize it. You have to be open to disagreement. That's a really a cornerstone of any successful decision-making process. Tell me a little bit about how both at the startup phase and even at, at larger companies, how you can discover these big unmet customer needs Versus wasting your time going down dead ends and rabbit holes.
2: Well, I mean, one is these are simple things, but they're really profound truths. Which is, you never invest in an entrepreneur who loves their right idea. You only invest in entrepreneurs who are obsessed with the need or the problem in the world. And because they, you need every option. Everything has to be on the table always to solve it. And so, whether you' trying to get your technology work, if it doesn't need technology or it needs to be a service company, whatever the answer is, the answer. That's, that's the first thing. The second is you organize yourself. So your relationship with your investors and your teams or culture to always drive to the truth. How do you create an environment where you know you're betting your life on commercial truth? And so obviously, you know, the lean movement, we call it validate, but that skill of able to experiment and test to get the answer, run down dark alleys to get to the light, as my friend Dick Costello says, is that you have to always be pursuing the light. So again, wishful thinking is the enemy. The more you don't have that truth, the more your idea the more you chase white space, it just radically increases the probability of failure. So getting those things right in yourself and your investor and your relationship with them is really just about getting the truth. And are you a person in an organization that can do that? And, you know, that's, that's a very difficult job because it weighs on you very heavily for a larger portion of your day than you really want it to. Actually, you want to be kind of spending more time in the fun stuff and less time in the hard stuff. And Reality is that you spend most of your time in the hard stuff for a very long time until you earn the right not to.
3: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all wheel drive and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
0: I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop down menu that follows.
1: I love that phrase, wishful thinking is the enemy. It's such a simple way to encapsulate a really, really poor idea.
2: Well, the guy who said that is in the Star Playbook and it was Elon. We were doing an interview. One of Elon's very close, lifelong friends is a very good friend of mine who ran the created a founder institute named adair Ressi. and adair introduced me to elon like i don't know 10 12 years ago and in the interview and accompanying company conversations that was the one thing that stuck out at me was is that when you're crossing your fingers you're in deep deep trouble that is literally the enemy and so only you can answer that question but if you don't the truth is coming anyways so why delay it <laughs>
1: Yeah. Such a good insight. I want to change gears a little bit. Tell me about how you can create at at your company a permanent growth capability. And and what does that mean?
2: Well, in a large enterprise, well, in a small enterprise, you should be completely your whole organization is about growing. You're growing or you're dying. So it's much more acute. So you feel that urgency and how you're leading it because everyone's completely focused on that. In a larger organization, it's harder because you're insulated from the customer, insulated from the day-to-day net impact of your decisions because you're not really in a live-die, live-die modality versus a startup, which you only are in a live-die modality. The urgency is crushing sometimes. But the answer to an enterprise is you got to change the way you work. It's really the how. So big organizations typically don't have an ideas, money, or talent problem. It's just the machine that they're in, that big-to-bigger Lean manufacturing, Six Sigma, Matrix is literally at war with growth, and so you got to build the machine. And so what we do is we've created a, something called a growth operating system, and it has five components. We set up growth boards that our senior executive leadership, as in the C-suite, sit on, and they become growth investors. They learn how to do high conviction, non consensus investing in portfolios that are not markets, but problems and needs at volume. They're not making five big bets a year that McKinsey told them the to right. They're doing 30 or 40 that they created, whether they invested in it or incubated it or bought it. And they're scaling them up across the stages of venture as a form of stage gate financing. There's decision science. And there's metrics across those stages that they learn because they're smart. And then they build special forces for growth that learn how to do this. And they build career paths for people that who could do validation and startups and they learn how to discovery, which is creating the portfolios themselves, and then, you know, they learn how to build things. They learn how to do the A through C rounds, and eventually they scale up or acquire or kill. And lastly, is the fifth element of this is just the operations. They learn how to operate growth, and they change incentives because you always get what you pay for. They change speed and legal and requirements that usually slow the machine down. They create speed. So those elements, growth board, discover, validate, build, and growth ops are the components of what we call an operating system for growth or the growth OS. And it's really a it's a very powerful offering that allows a CEO, whether it be PG or Nike or smaller, to manage growth in the same way they manage efficiency. Right? They can they can now operate and create an organization and with the same skill. And that is really That's what ambidextrous leadership is, is you got to be able to operate and create going forward. This is the bar for all leaders going forward. You can't just do one. That era is over of stock buybacks and efficiency. The world has been disrupted. The needs have changed. And, you know, the world needs growth leaders.
1: It's interesting. This theme that has really transcended a number of different topics that we've talked about today has been this idea of, correct me if I'm characterizing it wrong, but this notion of almost portfolio thinking as opposed to really focused bets and something. It's more about when you're when you're dealing with change, when you're dealing with the frontiers of innovation, you need to have a lot of smaller bets distributed across the field as opposed to two or three really big deep bets. Is that is that a correct
2: understanding of kind of one of the it, meta it, themes? It's a- absolutely true. It's absolutely true. But it's only a part of a model. There's been some great books. My friend Peter Sims wrote one called Little Bets, which was great. And I think Someone's coming out a book. It's basically a carbon copy of that. I don't remember who, but it's coming out in the next couple of months. And so there's things like that that are just part of the model. It's part of the element. But you're absolutely right. I mean, what you're trying to do, honestly, is permission. Permission is the reason why is what portfolios drive. It's optionality, but not in the sense of a company, but for a company to see the truth. And if you only have five silver bullets into a trillion dollar need in the world, How are you ever going to see the answer to what's working, whether it be a technology or model or service or product? But more importantly, about why you? What's your proprietary gift as a large organization and solving and winning it? So, if you can't answer that question, why us and why now? You're never going to be able to at least, you're never going to actually capture or scale the growth. It's something that's going to happen to you. You may be an investor in it and watch it happen, but if you want to own it, the question of why you and why now is is central to that, and really a portfolio is kind of the only way to answer that question. It's such a complex discovery question. It's not something you study and have the answer for. It's something that has to be done, observed, and learned. And that's a different continuum of leadership than reading a white paper and making a decision.
1: It's essentially it's you you create a basket of experiments to really figure out where the market's going, where the customer needs are going, which solutions are addressing those needs, and then as you see those things developing in real time, you start to double down and focus in on the things that are actually working.
2: One other element of this permission point, what you're saying is Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn, is just a beautiful human being on so many levels. I am always amazed by him and incredibly grateful for him. But he wrote the forward of my book, The Startup Playbook. And I remember telling me once, he's like, I asked him, to what degree is of every dollar you have in the bank is good timing and good fortune. And he was like, 80%. (laughs) 80%. <laughs> and what he's saying is, is like, listen, as good as everyone is, right? And as smart as, it, and all the smart money and smart entrepreneurs, are, people wildly underestimate the role of outside forces of market timing. The reason why very often big companies fail is because they think they're in control, their balance sheet, their budget, their brand, and then they prematurely scale a technology in search of a problem, whatever it is. And then it doesn't emerge for another two or three years and they stop doing it. And so they're not even there when it happens. And an entrepreneur who can you know hedgehog their way to being not dead when it happens is there to win the space, and so being there when it happens and recognizing that your growth is going to happen because of outside forces as much as it is about your own plans and execution is a much more acute understanding of how success in new things actually occurs, and so I think that that is an entirely new mindset that large leaders are now understanding, which is like, oh my God, we're not just crossing our fingers and getting lucky, we're positioning capital into a new problem world so that we know when it's arrived because we don't control it. So these are really quite profound insights in leadership and quite profound insights even for an entrepreneur who's just hoping that their success comes. Going back to the lens again, you start looking through those lenses and start understanding these factors work, you know, you you really fundamentally changes the job you do. I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning around the three jobs of entrepreneurship, which is you have to have a vision and you gotta be right on time. Two is you gotta hire the perfect people, one through 20 without a mistake, and you get two or three 20 through 50 and maybe four or five on 50 to 100. You exceed that number, you're dead. And three is you can't run out of money. So whether you can earn it or raise it, that job with these factors and these lenses become not a job of execution. It becomes of the criteria of how you think and how you lead. So. Those were the big ahas for me over the last decade of learning how to do the job as a founder.
1: Such good insights. And David, I'm curious, for somebody who wants to take some kind of action to start concretely implementing some of the things we've talked about today, what would one action step be for them to, to begin to implement some of these notions into their lives?
2: Well, two ideas. One is I wrote the purpose of Bionic seven years ago. It was this statement basically to ignite growth revolutions. And I used to think that was really like about money or success, whatever it is. But in reality, it's, it's the interior life of the leader. Ultimately, you are the permission. You are the ceiling inside of you that you will allow yourself or your company to take risk or not or discover you becoming because you have a bias of what it has to be you have to really become friends with your mind to change that, <laughs> those biases and or those permissions. And, you know, 90% of our life is lived in the subconscious. So if you can't get underneath all of the why and your intentional choices, you know, there's a lot of ways to sabotage otherwise successful possibilities. The other aspect of this is that I think there's this race to achieve in building things, so particularly companies, obviously, but this when I get this, I'll be happy, or when I get this, I'll have success, or or I will be successful in this thing happen. And they're kind of like peak moments or mountaintops. And in reality, when you get there, one is you realize that there's nothing there <laughs> at the top. And secondly is that it's just not satisfying. So I philosophically, and I think that try to talk about this a lot in my own company is is just fall in love with who you're becoming. This is a grind and it's a journey and it's one of the hardest journeys to do this as an entrepreneur as opposed to a larger organization. They're not better or worse, but the odds are is that you're not going to be successful. So you have to be at peace with that reality because it's really not about the company. It's just a company. It's really about your own growth in that journey that hopefully leads to a better, more extraordinary life and a more extraordinary you so you could have more extraordinary impact on others. When you get that wrong, eventually people will figure you out. They'll figure out your selfishness. They'll figure out your fakery, and it'll come falling apart anyways. So I would just spend a lot of time in your intention and knowing you're doing it for the right reasons.
1: Great insight Great. and really, really good look at what the journey is really all about. David, for people who want to find you and all of your work online, what is the best place for them to do that?
2: I do a lot of keynote speaking for large organizations and on our, my books at you can go to David S. Kidder, dot com. If you're a large enterprise and you are want to learn more about Bionic, and you can go to onbionic.com or you can reach me at David at onbionic.com. And also, you know, go check out the books. There's new to big.com. You can go to you can get on Amazon, the Startup Playbook all of those things are, they're just tools and they're just insights. And there's no answers. It's more about just sharing my own personal journey with others. And hopefully those are of good enough quality that you find them and keep them and hang on to them because, you know, others have, but I return to them all the time as well. And they just inevitably illuminate some part of something I missed the first time or the second time or the third time. Again, it's who you're becoming. I just want to thank you, Matt, you're a great interviewer and you're very generous. So thank you for this time together.
1: Well, David, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom.
2: Hard earned. Nothing's perfect. So thank you. All right, cool. All right, that cool. is a wrap. Thank you so much for
1: listening to the Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including Our most popular guide which is called how to organize and remember everything you can get it completely for free along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today again you can do that at successpodcast.com sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go just text the word smarter s-m-a-r-t-e-r to the number 44222 remember the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend either live or online if you enjoyed this episode please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success.